within a beautiful city, a hub of activity and a top tourism destination, a dark underbelly exists. And in April of 2006, two innocent men leaving a dinner party found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. With so much talent and such bright futures ahead of them, these men lost their lives in a brutal and inconceivable manner. The culprits are the young men, under the influence of mind-altering substances and searching for something far from legal to get up to. This is the case of the senseless murders of Brett Golden and Richard Bloom. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Brett Golden was born on the 21st of October 1977 to Denise and Peter Golden. He grew up in a Jewish household in Johannesburg with one sister, Sam. As he grew up, he was incredibly close to his mother, who was extremely protective over him. To the point where, because he was asthmatic, she had resorted to carrying a doctor's pager around with her everywhere. This bond would not change as he grew older. And from an early age, he had a passion for acting and the arts. He was a child actor at the age of 11 and had extensive experience in television, film and theatre. He also attended two prominent schools in Johannesburg whilst growing up. The King David School in Victory Park and later Crawford College in Santon. After matriculating, he had moved to Cape Town and he had attended the University of Cape Town. Subsequently, he also completed a performance diploma in speech and drama. And those of you who remember the MTV days when they actually still played only music videos may have remembered seeing him in between music videos in little ad break skits. I was in REM sleep, the deepest sleep you can get. You can die if someone wakes you suddenly. That's what makes it so extreme, dude. Wicked! <laughs> Wicked cool! <laughs> Wicked! Welcome to the jungle! These were part of a project with fellow actors and friends, Gavin Williams, Trevor Clarence, and Brandon Jack. The project was named Crazy Monkey. And those series of skits actually ended up as a well-received comedic feature film, Straight Out of Benoni. Brett also went on to star in multiple other productions, as well as commercials for Pepsi and CNA. And he also made it in bigger movies, such as the film Citizen Verdict and the TV series Charlie Jade and Yeezor Yeezor. And of course, the horror movie Slash and the romantic comedy Proteus. And when he wasn't acting, he was writing his own scripts. 
In 2004, he wrote and acted in his first stage play, a one-man show entitled Bad Apple, which looked at what would have happened if a Columbine-style killing had occurred in a wealthy public school in Johannesburg. The production received excellent reviews. So it really doesn't come as much of a surprise that two years later, Brett was chosen to play the role of Guildenstone in a South African production of Hamlet that was going to be performed in Stratford-upon-Avon in the UK. Brett was described by all who knew him as a good man, an empathetic and strong character who was a fiercely loyal friend, the last to judge and the first to forgive. He always chose to see the goodness in the world and in others, ever since he was a young boy. And as some others had also mentioned, he also made a pretty good coffee. At the time of the events, which I will be speaking about today, he was 28 years old. And he was just four days away from pursuing the new step in his journey, thousands of miles away in the UK. But that day, unfortunately, would never come. But we must remember that this crime had two victims. Richard Bloom was born on the 23rd of July 1978 to Sandy and Tony Bloom. He was actually a twin and he spent the best years of his childhood enjoying the company of his brother, Derek. He was an extremely driven and enthusiastic child and this translated to his adult life, where he was incredibly successful and talented within the field he had chosen. He had gone on after finishing school to attend the AAA School of Advertising and whilst there he had won the award for most improved student. And as a true testament to the kind of man that he was and the character that he had, he had played down this accolade. However, his partner, whom he had been with for around five years, could not wait to share the news with everyone they knew. Richard was in a long-term relationship with clinical psychologist Brian Hellman, and the two had a connection full of love, understanding, and kindness. They always looked for the best in one another, and they supported each other through thick and thin. This is another factor that aided their relationship success. Richard was described by many as being incredibly likable and incredibly accepting of others. At the time of the incident I will be discussing in this episode, Richard was employed as a fashion textile designer for a local label, Mace. He was 27 years old at the time and he had a bright future ahead of him, waiting to launch a new fashion line and so much to look forward to. But like Brett, his life would be cut short. Over the Easter weekend on the 15th of April 2006, Richard was invited to Craig Port's home in Camps Bay, a wealthy suburb on the Atlantic seaboard, for a dinner party to celebrate the homecoming of a friend from England. Craig was Richard's employer at the fashion label Maze. The invite was quite last minute and spur of the moment, so Richard's partner Brian decided that he was not going to attend. Richard had then invited his friend Brett Golden, who had become his plus one for the evening. 
Prior to leaving for Craig's home, the two had actually spent some time with Brett's mother, Denise. After a lovely evening of laughter and good food, the two men, Brett and Richard, were the first to leave the party at Craig's home at around midnight. But before doing so, Brett had to play with the gorgeous little Dachshund puppy that someone had brought to the party. He was a complete lover of animals, and I mean, who can resist a puppy? And so this picture was taken, the last picture that would ever be taken of Brett alive. The two men had then said their final goodbyes, and Brett had decided to walk Richard to his vehicle, a polo play which was parked on the main road, Victoria Road, before he had planned to walk back to his Peugeot and drive home. Unbeknownst to these men, whilst they were engaging in an incredibly normal action, just kilometers away from their joyous get-together, another group of friends, young men in their 20s, were partying in and around the city center. Soon, the two groups' paths would cross, in an ill-fated manner with dire consequences. Clinton Davids, Jade Weinhardt, and Nishad Davids, all from the Crawford area, were celebrating their friend Siobhan Marley's birthday in Longstreet, a busy street in the city centre by day that comes to life with nightlife and partying on most evenings. And my fellow Cape Tonians will know, a bunch of not-so-savoury characters too. The group had intended to go to another club, but just before midnight, their plans had changed. A decision that would irreparably change the course of so many individuals' lives forever. So the group decided instead of just going to another club and being incredibly boring, they were going to steal a car, which seemed like the best way to end an evening that had been full of drinking and using illicit substances. And whilst driving Siobhan's red BMW down Camps Bay Main Road, they had spotted Richard and Brett. They had then set their eyes on their targets. I'm not sure particularly why this is the way it is, but according to many reports, and just general knowledge, polo vehicles are often the most hijacked vehicle in South Africa. Yeah, it is pretty bizarre, but I'm assuming that it has something to do with parts that are in demand and are easily sold. But anyways, this could be why the group were potentially looking for a polo in particular. Siobhan had been driving down Victoria Road, and Clinton had voiced that they should rob the men that they had just passed, standing by the polo vehicle. They had then performed a U-turn and Clinton was handed a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. Along with Siobhan, he had exited the vehicle, he had pointed the gun at the two men and he had forced them into the trunk of the polo. Here, they had searched their bodies and at this point, they had found Brett's car keys on him. Brett had then pointed out his Peugeot, which was parked nearby. Both men had handed over everything on them, but instead of just being left alone, they were bundled into the back seat of the BMW. Clinton and Nishad had then left in the VW Polo, and Siobhan and Jade were left with the victims in the BMW. The two vehicles then left Camps Bay, and they headed towards the cable station of Table Mountain, the iconic South African landmark. Once there, both Richard and Brett were forced out of the vehicle and Clinton had instructed them to undress. 
Terrified and held at gunpoint, they had obeyed the command. Their clothing had then been thrown off the side of the mountain, into the dark and dense vegetation below. Allegedly, the idea had been to leave these two victims in the parking lot so that the hijackers could make a safe escape. However, things did not go according to that plan. In a split second, everything had changed when Jade Vengard's phone had rung. As he had gone to answer it, he had accidentally discharged the 9mm pistol that had been tucked in his pants. Yeah, I kid you not. Clinton was instantly aggravated and he had taken the firearm and told Nishad and Jade to get into the BMW. He and, of course, the rest of the other men were worried that the noise would cause unwanted attention. Clinton and Siobhan were then left with Brett and Richard. Both men were then bound and forced naked, wearing only their socks, into the boot of the polo vehicle. I cannot begin to imagine the humiliation that they must have felt, as well as the overwhelming horror of being moved from one location to the next in the trunk of a vehicle, not knowing what was happening. This ride of terror in some way reminds me of the one that Hannah Cornelius took with her attackers. The men driving along the M5 highway then decided that they were going to drop Brett and Richard off on the side of the highway in a deserted clearing. They had driven off of the highway, however, the wheels of the polo vehicle had then become stuck in the loose sand. After unsuccessfully attempting to move the vehicle, the two victims who were in the boot were then dragged out of the boot to help push the vehicle in a bid to get it back onto the road. These men were taken out of the boot to help move a vehicle that had been stolen from them, a vehicle in which they had been bound and held captive in. The efforts to get the car on the road failed and Brett and Richard were then instructed to lie face down on the ground. Clinton had then handed the gun to Siobhan and told him to shoot the men if they tried to run or if they made a noise. Moments later, one of the men had screamed. And the response? Two shots. One into the back of each man's head. They were shot executioner style and their lives were entered immediately. Their bodies were then left naked and uncovered in the dirt in the dark. At this point, Yassine Essen and Zubair Davids were called to assist with moving the vehicle. Yassine had refused to help, however, he had dropped Zubair off at Nishad's house. There, Zubair had grabbed some tools, a spade, tow rope, and the BMW car keys, and he had headed to the men on the highway. At the crime scene, the perpetrators had attempted to tow the vehicle, but the tow rope had broke, and they ended up having to cut out the seat belts of the polo to use instead. This was Clinton's idea. Siobhan and Zubar then towed Clinton in the polo to Nishad David's house in Crawford. Back at the house, the five men, Clinton, Jade, Siobhan, Zabir, and Nishad, met up with Ramiz Saeed, his girlfriend Anushka, and another friend Trevino back in Kilda Street, Crawford. The group had then continued to party and jaw. A short while later, Clinton, Siobhan and Ramiz had left the house in a blue Toyota Taz, 
Ramiz's car. Ramiz had then driven the men, as he did not want them driving his car, back to Camps Bay for the Peugeot. It is alleged that Siobhan had wanted the Peugeot as a birthday present. Yeah, I kid you not. When the group had returned to Camps Bay, though, they had struggled in their state of mind to find the original kidnapping location. And this is where fate would have a hand in bringing justice to light. But first, let's focus on what was playing out with the friends and family members of Brett and Richard in the hours following their kidnapping and murder. On the morning of the 16th of April, Brett was supposed to meet his mother to go through the last bit of documentation and paperwork before he left for the UK. However, the minutes ticked by as Denise Golden had waited for her son at the Winchester Mansions Hotel in Seapoint. Brett was never late, so she immediately knew that something was wrong. It was shortly after this that she had received a phone call from Brett's bank, Nedbank, notifying her that the police had contacted them to find out information about a cardholder. They had then told her that the police had picked up his card on some individuals that they had just arrested. She had then frantically called Brian Hellman, Richard's partner, in a bid to find Brett. Across town, Brian had not heard from Richard that day, and he had become worried, even travelling to his apartment to look for him. Together with Denise, both parties had then gone to the Camps Bay Police Station to file a missing persons report for both Brett and Richard. Denise had then notified the rest of the family, including Brett's sister and father. And very soon, over a hundred people were gathered outside the police station, desperate to find their missing friends. And so began the almost 30-hour search across the city of Cape Town for these two young men. But in the early hours of Monday morning, everything changed. And yet another strange twist of fate. But more on that in a little bit. Brian had been sitting in his car outside of the police station around 6am in the morning when a police officer had approached his window. After he had rolled the window down, the police officer had then told him that they had found the men and they were dead. Brian became hysterical and inconsolable for the next hour. And then he made the call he dreaded to Richard's parents. Over at the Golden household, Denise had been visited by police officers, a psychologist and members from a health service to have the news broken to her and the other family members. And if you've ever lost someone close to you, you will know the deep and inconsolable grief that grips you from the very moment of hearing the news. It would soon come to light to their friends and family that the bodies of Brett Golden and Richard Bloom had been found close to a clearing near the M5 highway. But although one question had been answered, this discovery brought about so many more questions, some of which still remain unanswered to this day. And so you may be curious as to how these two men were discovered. Well, as I mentioned, it was a twist of fate. You see, on Sunday morning, a resident of Camps Bay had become suspicious after he had noticed a blue Toyota Taz following his vehicle across a couple of turns and then finally into a cul-de-sac. 
he had continued driving down this road and at the end of the cul-de-sac there was actually a police vehicle. They had been checking on a domestic disturbance at the time. The man had then approached the police officers, he had explained the situation and very shortly the road was cordoned off and the Toyota Taz was stopped. The police had then called for backup, as was customary. At this point, Clinton Davids, Siobhan Marley and Ramiz Saeed were taken out of their vehicle and appeared to officers to be under the influence of either drugs or alcohol. It would later come to light that these men were not only under the influence of alcohol, but also apparently took. On Siobhan's person, they had searched him and they had found one round of live ammunition, as well as two small packets of what appeared to be drugs. The vehicle was then searched. Within the vehicle, the police officers had found a credit card with the name B. Golden on it, as well as 1,040 rand in cash. The men were then taken to the Camps Bay Police Station, where they were arrested for loitering and they were detained for questioning. However, at this point, the fact that Brett and Richard were missing was not yet known. Although later, in this very police station, the investigation into the missing men would commence. Siobhan and Ramiz would not speak to police officers within the presence of Clinton Davids, as it was clear that they were intimidated by him. But why, you may ask? Well, because his brother, Ikshan Davids, was the alleged boss of a gang in the Cape known as the Americans. And so, with none of the men talking, police were at a stalemate. Siobhan's mother and grandfather came to visit him in the holding cells. They were hoping to convince him to tell the truth, no matter the consequences. His grandfather even went as far as physically striking him twice. That definitely switched something in him, and crying through his tears, he had told his mother that he was going away for a very long time, because he was an accomplice. He then agreed, after being read his Miranda rights, that he would lead the police to the two men. Ramiz was also willing to assist, although he had no part to play in the initial kidnapping or murder. So all he knew was what was discussed between Siobhan and Clinton in the Taz on the way to go and get the Peugeot. To his knowledge, they should be looking for a tree-filled area along the M5. At first, police had believed that the two men may have still been alive, but soon the grisly discovery was made. Captain Kenneth Speed was the investigating officer in this case. You may remember his face from one of my previous episodes, Kept in the Dark, The Shocking Crimes of Johannes Moers, where he was actually the man who discovered and rescued the two young female victims. He is quite an astounding officer of the law with over 20 years experience in the field, working on some of the most brutal cases within South Africa. And as amazing as he was in that case, he was outstanding in this case too. He worked day in and day out to get to the bottom of the timeline and the events that occurred in order to bring justice to the victims and closure to their families. I know quite often, not only within South Africa, police officers and law enforcement are viewed within a certain negative light. Many times with good reasons though. 
But with all the bad, it's important to keep in mind that there are still phenomenal individuals out there doing an important job and doing it exceptionally well. Individuals like Captain Kenneth Speed. After the bodies were pointed out, everything flowed quite quickly from that point. Soon, the timeline of events and the main role players were established. Brett's sister had made the suggestion to the prosecutors, including Janine Joost, that a plea bargain may be the best route to follow. Her reasoning? Well, with a plea bargain, it would save both parties, both families of the victims, the trauma of a potentially drawn-out and agonizing trial, where they would be forced to relive every single detail for an extended period of time. And so the terms of a plea bargain were set, which included Jade Vinghart and Nishad Davids testifying and turning state witness against Clinton Davids and Siobhan Mali. Both Jade and Nishad pleaded guilty to robbery with extenuating circumstances, kidnapping, possession of an unlicensed firearm and ammunition, and the possession of a dangerous weapon. They were both sentenced to 15 years in prison with three years suspended. Zubair Davids and Yasid Essen were both sentenced to two years each on charges of vehicle theft and possession of stolen goods and an unlicensed gun and ammunition. Their sentence was on the condition that they gave evidence against Clinton and Siobhan. Siobhan Marley and Clinton Davids both faced nine counts each. Two of murder, two of kidnapping, two of robbery with aggravating circumstances, two of possession of an illegal firearm, and one relating to possession of a dangerous weapon. It took less than 30 minutes for the judge to pass down his verdict. Each man received 28 years behind bars. They were told that they would be eligible to apply for parole in 2020. Parole for two of the men convicted came far sooner than expected due to a new ruling, the Correctional Matters Amendment Act, passed by then-President Jacob Zuma. An amendment in the legislation affected by Zuma stated that certain prisoners only needed to serve half of their sentences before becoming eligible for parole. Zuma also announced a six-month remission to all prisoners and a further 12 months to inmates convicted for non-violent crimes in a Freedom Day amnesty announcement. Jade Vinghart and Nishad Davids both applied for parole in November of 2011 and then again in January of 2012. Both applications were denied. They would apply one more time unsuccessfully, to the relief of Denise Golden. However, in June of 2014, both Jade and Nishad were released on parole after serving seven years of their sentence in the Drakenstein prison. They were to serve the remainder of their sentence under house arrest with an electronic tag and strict conditions. The two men had participated in a rehabilitation program in prison and the authorities had stated that they were satisfied with their progress and that they were somewhat optimistic that they would not reoffend. A representative, Simpiwe Ngako, had said, The department is focused on rehabilitation, rather than locking people up and throwing away the key. All offenders come from society and go back to society. Richard's father, Tony Bloom, had said, 
They got a second chance. By virtue fact, they've been granted parole. Richard and Brett didn't get a second chance. There's no second chance for them. But there's a second chance for these two guys who got parole. Their parole conditions included that they refrain from alcohol and drug abuse. They were also able to seek work during the day, but had to be home at night. They were also to take part in ongoing rehabilitation, including anger management courses, therapeutic intervention, and community service. Their parole process was open and transparent and included the victim's families. Upon the decision being made, Denise Golden had said, It's a harsh reality to face. We knew that the time would come when they would be released. We just hope that it's the right decision and they will be correctly integrated and not return to drugs and crime. Although both Clinton Davids and Siobhan Marley have been eligible for parole from 2020, I was unable anywhere to find any information on whether or not they have been released. So let's explore the roots of the senseless crime. The murders basically occurred as a direct result of one of the individuals, Siobhan Marley, following the instructions of another one, Clinton Davids, with no argument. You may be thinking to yourself, well, if I was in that situation, I would never blindly obey and end two innocent men's lives. But psychological research and studies spanning decades may offer a different perspective. Let me explain. But please, before I do, this understanding in no way condones or makes the crimes committed any less horrific or the perpetrators any less guilty. This is also my personal opinion and observation, obviously not a professional diagnosis. So I'm sure if you're a fan of psychology and experiments, you would have heard of Stanley Milgram. In 1961, Stanley Milgram, an American social psychologist and Yale University professor, began an experimental study looking at obedience and authority. And so began the Milgram experiments, focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. The idea was to see how far people would go in obeying an instruction, even if it meant harming another person. Participants were told by an experimenter to administer increasingly powerful electric shocks to another individual. Unbeknownst to the participants, shocks were fake, and the individual being shocked was an actor. The majority of participants obeyed even when the individual being shocked screamed in pain. Now, right off the bat, let me tell you that the study was highly unethical for a multitude of reasons. But it did bring to light some vital and interesting realizations. One of the most important points, and one that is valid to this case, is that there is power in authority, and someone who holds a higher position or rank often has the power, with the right circumstances at play, to influence people below them, to behave unethically, and even in some cases against their own wishes. So keeping that in mind, let's take into account the knowledge that often, as shown by multiple studies, individuals feel a diminished sense of responsibility when simply following orders, especially when these orders have cruel consequences. It's almost as though if they didn't come up with the idea themselves, 
then they are not responsible for any pain or suffering that the execution of that order and idea may cause. So to demonstrate that concept, take into account yet another questionable but vital study. This time it was Philip Zimbardo at the helm, an American psychologist and professor at Stanford University. In 1971, he conducted the Stanford Prison Experiment. In a nutshell, the study was designed to examine the effects of situational variables on the reaction and behaviors of participants in a two-week simulation of a prison environment. The participants were split up and eventually there were 10 prisoners and 11 prison guards. The prisoner participants were treated like prisoners. They all had their personal possessions removed and they were locked away and given prison clothes and bedding. They were issued a uniform and referred to by their numbers only. Three guards would work shifts of eight hours each, completely in control of the prisoners. So to cut a long story and a two-week experiment short, the takeaway from the study was that power fundamentally alters perception. As Philip Zimbardo said in a later interview, human behavior is more influenced by things outside of us than inside. The situation is the external environment here. And so it's interesting to consider that behind every single action, there are underlying factors that led to it and the person performing it. I actually engaged in a comment the other day about how I was supposedly incorrectly blaming the patriarchy for the brutal homophobic murder of Zoliswa Nkonyana, my previous episode. Because in that person's mind and within their comment, a group of black women had instigated an argument with Zoliswa, an argument that ended in her eventual murder. And so in that person's eyes, it had absolutely nothing to do with the patriarchy, apartheid or religion right? And that is exactly why I post these episodes, because knowledge is power. And knowledge allows us to not only view the world in an objective and deeper manner, but it also allows us the luxury of understanding our fellow human beings and the opportunity to enact change that will be felt in the years to come. Because if you, the person listening to me right now, the community, people in places of power, and many other people fully understand how factors like poverty and patriarchy, amongst others, lead to these heinous crimes, we can actually enact change to reduce the occurrences. And thus, we won't be trying to play catch up with issues after the crimes have taken place. And that's not only applicable in South Africa, but on a worldwide scale. It's a change in ideas, it's a change in mentality, it's a change in your viewpoint. So in terms of this case, what existed just below the surface? I often place emphasis on the upbringing and environment of the perpetrators I discuss because childhood development plays a crucial role in adult behavior. These young men were all in their 20s and they lived in Crawford. Crawford is a suburb east of the city centre and home to many productive members of society. Although it was basically impossible to find any information on the developmental years of these men, 
I did read one or two articles which stated that they all came from loving families. Now, I obviously can't testify that those claims are correct, even if a family member had said it, because often there's a lot more going on than what meets the eye. And things are most often not what they appear to be on the surface. That being said, there was much talk when the case hit the media about the fact that Clinton Davids was the brother of Ikshan Davids, an alleged key role player in the Americans gang. Now, there's no evidence that Clinton himself was part of any gangs. However, you cannot discount that possibility, especially given the fact that the other two arrested individuals that night were incredibly intimidated and would not speak when around him. That does signal that there was a specific power dynamic at play. For a brief understanding about prison gangs and how they operate in Cape Town in particular, you can check out my previous episode on the serial killer Cameron Wilson. So whilst we cannot truly know what went on in the years preceding these murders, we do know that the subculture of violence and gangsterism always has an impact on development, particularly of the youths within communities where gangsterism and violence is more prevalent. And what often goes hand in hand with violence and gangsterism is substance use and abuse. At the time of their arrest, almost every single one of the perpetrators was inebriated and under the influence of Tuck. For my international audience, Tuck is basically crystal meth. It is a powerful stimulant that acts on the central nervous system. It is also highly addictive and quite cheap and readily available, thus making it a popular choice in many lower income communities. The user can often feel invincible at first, but the overexcitement of the central nervous system can lead to feelings of paranoia, anxiety, and in some cases, even delusions. And when you combine this substance with others like alcohol, it only leads to more negative and destructive events. Clinical psychologist Mark Delaray, who has a keen interest in substance and behavioral addiction, offered insight as to how using the substance in this particular case impaired the judgment and actions of the perpetrators. The takeaway was that Tuck won't make you kill someone, but it will impair your judgment. The drug itself impacts the access of higher brain functioning, such as thinking, reasoning, speaking, and carrying out purposive movement. The ability to control one's impulses is also often impaired. The user will also find that often their perception of a situation is impaired. And then of course, there are the physical symptoms as a result of the overactivation of the central nervous system. These are things like an increased heart rate and higher blood pressure. So Tuck may not make you kill someone, but it will dehumanize you, desensitize you. And in that state, with all the external influences of your environment at play, well, a lot is unfortunately possible. Regardless of the reason and roots that led to the heinous murder of these two young men, the fact remains that it happened. And it is now their families who live with the consequences of these cruel and callous actions. Denise Golden, in a later interview, had said, 
I think a good part of me died with him. My daughter and I were discussing. We're not the same people. You can't be. When you lose a child, all you want to do is die and be with them. You can't believe they are gone. I used to run around the house saying, Brett, where are you? Where are you? The grief is unbearable. She went on to start a group for other families, in particular parents who have lost their children. She called it the worst club in the world. She used her experience and grief to reach out to others in their darkest times and bring them some light. She had said, The worst club in the world meets regularly for informal meetings, usually over tea. Our meetings are upbeat, especially on birthdays and other milestones. The Golden Bursary was also created, which is awarded every second year to postgraduate art students and gives them the opportunity to study the works of Shakespeare and theatre with the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon. Richard Bloom's partner, Brian Hellman, wrote a book, called Soul Conductor, where he attempted to map out his trajectory from the moment Richard went missing to the days, months, and years of his journey of grief after learning about Richard's death. That grief had turned into healing over the years, and he wanted to share the message with others in the hopes of aiding them on their journeys. His central message was that the grief process is your own. Trust your intuition and respect the honesty and integrity of your feelings. But although there is healing, there is also so much loss to deal with. In the months and years following the death of these two men, Brett's father had died of heart complications, just nine months after Brett's death. Many believe he died of a broken heart. Richard's mother, who was extremely close to him, was diagnosed with cancer and she later passed away as a result of that diagnosis. The impact of the reckless decisions of a handful of young men resulted in so many losses and lives forever altered. Richard's partner Brian made mention of a beautiful sentiment and belief within the Jewish religion, which I would like to share in closing. He said that it is a belief that every time you remember someone who has passed on, you lift their soul higher on their journey to heaven. So I thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to the narratives of Brett Golden and Richard Bloom. Thank you for being a part of their story and journey. And also, thank you for joining me this Pride Month. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye.